Hello, you wonderful people. If you haven't already, make sure you sign up to our Patreon account. The link will be in the description of this podcast, but you can also go to patreon.com forward slash Pod. For as little as four euros a month, you can help us out and become part of our little community. You'll get early access to all of the pods and you'll also get a monthly newsletter from myself and Jim. So basically two monthly newsletters where we'll talk about stuff that's going on in our own personal lives and what we've been thinking about slash inspired about. We also are asking you guys to get involved with the podcast so you can send in questions for our upcoming guests or you can suggest to us people or topics you would like us to interview and explore further. Um, We love you. We hope that you love us and hopefully just by giving us as little as four euros a month, that's basically, it's not even a pint in London that you can help us become an even better podcast. Thank you all. Hello friends, this week our guest is Lee Theresa Moore who is an advocate for raising awareness about disassociative disorders and complex PTSD. We are also joined by her lovely partner Paul. In this podcast Lee discusses some of the major events in her life that can now be viewed retrospectively as trauma resurfacing. As our previous guest Dr Mike Lloyd mentioned in our conversation a few months ago, some brains in a response to incredibly shocking and or traumatic events can eradicate the event or events from conscious memory or even create several personalities to help process the traumatic events. This episode hopes to shed light on what it is like for someone in this position, such as Lee, who after decades of misdiagnosis was diagnosed with disassociative amnesia several years ago. We also hear from our partner Paul on the challenges of this condition uh, as someone on the outside looking in. This may be difficult to listen as some harrowing events are mentioned, but we feel that this is necessary to share. We thank you for your curiosity in learning more about disassociative disorders, and we thank Lee and Paul for their time and kindness. I have attached Lee's handle on Twitter below. And yeah, thanks again, guys. All the best. Hi guys and welcome back to the Earthy Delights podcast. We have a very um, important follow-on from the Dr. Mike Lloyd um, podcast that we've pre-recorded. It's already been out there. So, you know, if you want to listen to this and things feel a bit that don't really make sense, maybe go back to listen to that one and then come back to this one. We'll leave that up to you guys. But uh, yes, yeah, it's a very important podcast. We have uh, Lee Teresa Moore with us, who suffers from um, dissociative amnesia and has been kind enough to give us a time to talk us through and hopefully help anyone else out there who is uh, on the long and arduous journey that Lee's gone through. Lee, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing? What's the crack? Thank you. Thank you. Nice to be here. Perfect, perfect. It's uh, it's great to have you on. Obviously, we had the first little preliminary call just to go through, uh, go through what we want to talk about this podcast. Uh, for people who aren't aware of what dissociative amnesia means uh, or what it looks like, can you give us your experience about you know what, what that means for you and and how that feels. Right. Yeah. Dissociative amnesia is a response to early childhood trauma, and it impacts me in the sense that I have episodes where I lose all awareness of myself. Lee disappears, I have no sense of time, no sense of place, I don't know my name. Um, I can even relocate, I can end up in another 
part of the town. I can cross roads, um, I can have body memories, and I can be gone from five minutes to several hours, uh, which is quite frightening and quite alarming. I have the episodes in response to traumatic triggers. These can be specific, like the war in Iran recently had affected me, or they can be non-specific, uh, like a smell. I can walk into a room and there's a creepy feeling or something. Uh, and then I will, but I am told, because I don't know what happens to me when I lose my awareness, uh, is the fact my eyes go blank. Um, sometimes I don't say anything. Sometimes, the other day, I collapsed in Aldi and I went to check my shopping out at the counter. Then the next minute I found myself on the floor. And when I came round, the manager was there. He offered to drive me home. I went with him, but I didn't know. And I, as we came to the top of the traffic lights on the road, um, he turned left and I thought, how does he know that? Um, but apparently I told a complete stranger what my name and address was, uh, which is a bit concerning. Another time, again, six weeks ago, I had an episode. I went to shop in spa and then I found myself. Uh, I remember coming out of spa and then I found myself in another street in a strange man's van. Um, the side door was open. It was a delivery van and I had no idea how I got there. Um, so I lose all sense of um, time, space, who I am and so forth. And it can be and I only know what happens when people tell me. What, what has happened. And how long has this been going on, Lee? How, when, can you, how, when can you trace this back to? When was the first episode? The first episode was in Margate, um, and that was in 2017. And I had gone there with a friend, and we checked into a hotel. And it was a 1950s type of typical South Coast resort hotel. And as I walked into the room, the first thing that hit me was it was like walking back into my childhood. The furniture was all wooden furniture, and it felt just like a room that I had been in as a child. We'd gone down there to meet some friends. We went to have dinner with them. We went back to their apartment. We started playing cards. And then the next thing I knew was that I was back in the hotel with my friend looking at me really, really worried, saying, what the heck happened to you? I said, what do you mean? What do you mean? He said, you're out of it. Linda wanted to call an ambulance for you. And I still didn't know what he meant by that. And then apparently we were playing cards, playing nomination whist, and our friends were winning. And I started taking their tricks. My eyes went blank and I started taking their tricks. And they asked me why I was taking their tricks. And they told and I, I replied on one level, I do have some consciousness, even though I don't know what I'm doing and I have no memory after. Uh, I told them that I'm taking their tricks because I wanted they'd won with them and I wanted to win the game. I mean, that was really bizarre. So really alarming. That was the first episode. It was very frightening. I'm told it lasted about 20 minutes. Naturally went home. I didn't drive. I've stopped driving um, since uh, 2017. Um, and went to see the doctor the following day. And the doctor thought that I'd had a mini stroke and told me to take an aspirin a day. That was the first diagnosis I had, a potential mini stroke. Um, the episode started to continue, uh, continued, and I began to get a little bit of a picture that they were in response to trauma that I'd experienced in my childhood, uh, or some of the traumas that I'd experienced in my ch uh, childhood. Um, and unfortunately, I went to the, another doctor, 
and the doctor called them seizures because I was blanking out. She said they were seizures and that I had epilepsy big time and that they were very concerned for my safety. And so um, they wanted to put me on medication and the diagnosis didn't feel right to me. It really didn't. Um, but the doctors know best. So I stay, uh, I listened to the doctor and I went and saw a neurologist and um, the neurologist, uh, unfortunately, I had an episode with him. Oh, that's the point. In some of my uh, episodes, I regress to a child uh, and I can sing nursery rhymes. So one of the people that caused me an enormous lot of distress and who abused me was the family GP. And the neurologist that went to examine me used one of those torches that they'd shine in your eye and his face came very close over to me and I was also abused in the doctor's surgery. So all those triggers, I went off big time, regressed to a child, began crying, singing nursery rhymes. Uh, and despite that, the neurologist said I definitely had uh, a focal seizure, a complex partial seizure, sorry, uh, and that I'd got epilepsy. I mean, the facts just didn't fit. Um, but and a full history wasn't taken of me. Uh, for me, that diagnosis still stands. And I stood my ground with the GP. I wasn't happy with that. Um, and I stood my ground with the GP. And I said I wanted to see a psychologist. I definitely had a feeling I was being, the episodes were being triggered by trauma. But doctors kept saying, no, it's seizures, it's seizures. And I do wish there could be a change in terminology that we don't call dissociative episodes seizures. That's where a start of the confusion starts between um, dissociative seizure and an epileptic seizure. There definitely needs to be some education on that. Um, so I stood my ground with the GP. I said I wanted to see a psychologist and she informed me that I just wanted to shop around until I found a doctor that was going to give me the diagnosis I wanted to hear. And she told me to go and find a psychologist. So fortunately, I did my research and I found a psychologist who had lots of experience with dissociation. And he'd written papers, he'd worked, uh, done some research. And um, I say after a period of nearly 30 years, the first episode, I should backtrack a bit. First episode, whilst it was in 2017, um, in two, uh, 1990, uh, 1988, I had a nervous breakdown. Uh, my little boy was abducted and taken to a foreign country uh, in breach of the terms of a court order. And I failed in all my attempts to get him back. And when I realised that there was going to be no hope of ever getting access or having him back, then I say I had this nervous breakdown because I just didn't know what to do with the pain. Um, or the depression I felt. And I have to be honest, I felt suicidal too. Uh, I was also drinking too much. I was aware of that. And so I, start, I sought psychiatric treatment. Uh, I put myself under the care of a private psychiatrist. And in 1988, I admitted myself to a treatment centre. The psychiatrist did ask me about my childhood. And I, I replied to her, nothing wrong with my childhood. I had a private education. 
My parents, uh, there was always enough money at home. I was well fed. I was well clothed. Father could get a bit violent sometimes, but that was because I was naughty and I needed some punishment. You're looking in the wrong area. Nevertheless, she persisted. And to give the woman her credit, I was diagnosed as an alcoholic, uh, an addict, a codependent. And she asked me to write my life story. She asked me to write um, a letter to my father with my non-dominant left hand. And it was in 1988 that the first memory of child abuse surfaced. And I thought I was mad. I thought there's no way that anybody, obviously I was mad because I was in a treatment centre, but then I was doubly mad because here I am imagining some sort of abuse in childhood. Um, and I was really concerned. Uh, I didn't believe it was real. Um, but th that was an opportunity for the um, dissociation to be um, identified. It was known at the time. Um, so it could have been identified in 1988. Then I think in the early 1990s, 1991, 92, dispatches had a programme on organised child abuse. And I was doing the ironing one minute. And then the next minute, I, I saw an image on the television screen about the abuse. And I was lying on the floor, curled up in a fetal ball, and my teeth were chattering. I didn't dissociate. I was perfectly uh, conscious, but I had no control over my body. And I had more memories of other people, other men abusing me, one of which was indeed the family doctor. And he was still the family doctor. And indeed, he was monitoring me um, coming to the treatment centre uh, while I was having treatment. Uh, and I actually did confront him. And he really, really did me a great favour because he admitted it. And he told me that most children find it very pleasurable. And he was disappointed that he, I hadn't remembered that he and father did me in the uh, front room of his surgery. Um, but I was always grateful for that because that was a validation of my memories and my experiences. So but again, I told the psychiatrist I was seeing and again, the dissociation wasn't picked up. Then I had 23 years where I lived a normal life. And the psychiatrist was great. Healed the addictions, healed the codependency, the alcoholism. The, the, the job was done on that and coming to an acceptance of the loss of my child. So that worked in that. And then I had 22, 23 years clear until the Margate visit. So trauma doesn't have a clock. It stayed buried in, uh, in my psyche. The demons were dancing in my psyche uh, for decades. Uh, but then, um, I say, they, they surfaced, and I believe they surfaced because I was probably strong enough to deal with the horror and the nightmare of what I'd experienced. So, uh, unfortunately, through, you know, I stood my ground with a GP, I found a psychologist who was able to assist me enormously. And over a period of three years, we've managed to identify and resolve the trauma. Um, the other good thing about the episodes is the fact that when I do get triggered, uh, it has been, or when I was tr triggered, I'm cautiously optimistic I might be coming to the end of my episodes. Um, there have been opportunities for me to identify what happened, you know, to acknowledge and to feel the feelings. I wasn't allowed to feel my feelings as a child. So I've had the opportunity to release that, to release those memories 
and come to terms with them. And I have to say the whole experience has enabled me to realise the indomitability of the human spirit within me. Uh, you know, there's something, the dissociation certainly helped me to survive. There's no way. When I look back at the experiences, there's no way. I mean, the, the abuse began when I was three years old and didn't, uh, didn't end until I was 14 and I became pregnant. Um, so, you know, the fact that I got through it all, the dissociation certainly helped me because at one stage I was really angry with the dissociation. Um, but now I can see that it protected me and has actually helped me heal, ironically. It really has. But again, with these skills of a psychologist who knows about the subject, who knows about the issue, who understands it, and also a psychologist who has respected me, who has listened to me uh, and challenged me at times, uh, which has been absolutely great. So it, I, I do believe, I believe it or not, the last three weeks, I have stopped listening to Ukraine because the episodes certainly increased uh, while I was watching uh, the news on the Ukraine. But again, they were an opportunity for healing. They very definitely were. But having said that, I've also turned off the news and I haven't dissociated for the last three weeks. Is there anything else you'd like to ask me? <laughs> um lee one thing i wanted to ask thanks for sharing all this is the you there are so many points that you raised here that i would love to unpack but one thing that i think that strikes me as crucial is how the importance of the validation you mentioned you received after the doctor confirmed that what you thought might have happened did happen do you think that a lot of people with that had had adverse child childhood trauma um, don't get that validation and then subsequently can't fully heal? Do you think that's a, a massive uh, impediment to healing? When you say the doctor, do you mean the therapist who uh, worked with me and the therapy I had or the doctor that abused me? Which doctor are you referring to? I'm sorry, I meant the, the GP that abused you. The doctor who abused me, it certainly helped that he validated those. He bragged it, he enjoyed it. He really enjoyed telling me and acknowledging it. Uh, but at the time, there's no way I could sue him or bring proceedings because I was the addict, the alcoholic in treatment. And in the early 80s, they hadn't accepted the extent of abuse in childhood. Mm -hmm. And in terms of credibility, he was Ox Oxford educated, you know, mm -hmm. from a respectable um, GP in a West London suburb. I wouldn't have stood a snowball's chance in hell. And plus the fact I would have re-traumatized. I was so fragile in my early stages of recovery. Our adversarial legal system would have absolutely crucified me. It would have stopped my healing process. I'd imagine there might be people listening who are um, in a similar boat that may believe that they did suffer childhood trauma, but they don't have the validation because maybe what they think happened to them sounds absurd. Or, you know, people are trying to say, yes. oh, no, that, that didn't happen yeah, to you, no way, absolutely. you had a nice childhood. Or that, no, that didn't happen that time. And, uh, and I just wonder, how powerful it, it, the validation it is itself, the fact that you know for 100% it did happen to you, so then you, you're trusting yourself again, you're not denying your own experience. And I think and part no. of me feels that so many people who are in, experiencing heavy trauma are, are, being, are not being listened to, their experience is being denied, and that subsequently can't let them heal. Yeah, there's two ways there. One, I was very lucky that an abuser admitted it. Okay, it was in privacy, I didn't record it. In one sense, nobody's going to do that because they're admitting liability for a criminal offence. 
Uh, but as you say, the other validation was with the therapist I heard, because say Ukraine, the worst comes last, sadly. Uh, and my partner, Paul, will be speaking to you shortly. Ukraine really did. The killings in Ukraine really brought up some horrors for me. And I also think they were responsible for me collapsing because I don't know if I mentioned earlier that I do have body memories sometimes. Have I mentioned that? Mm. That um, I have woken up, uh, I've come out of an episode and the following day I've got big finger marks on the tops of my arms and then I get flashbacks of being held. Uh, and so I did witness some awful atrocities uh, during childhood. And when I went through, uh, say, the therapy session with them, uh, this again, again, even though it was only a couple of weeks ago, I thought, am I mad? Am I fantasizing? Could I really have experienced something like this? Um, and then discussing it with the therapist, he validated my experience. He said, was this present? Was that present? You know, I, I'm not going into details because they are too horrific and I don't want to cause distress. But by him asking the questions he asked me, I said, yes, that was present, that was present, that was present, proving to me that the poor therapist had heard such as, you know, an account from somebody else before, such a disclosure before, but also validated what I'd experienced and what I'd seen. Um, and, yeah, um, and you can film this bit if you want. It was really distressing. Um, I'm not going to dissociate now. I'm going to carry on talking to you because I could dissociate at this minute and I'm determined not to. Paul is crossing my back. Um, but the validation, yeah, I was respected. Somebody heard me. Somebody listened to me. The details weren't good. And validated me by checking on what evidence was there to corroborate what I was saying. Um, and yeah, I experienced something really, really ghastly. Uh, as did the person, another person that went through it. <coughs> so see it, watching people suffer, other people suffer, seeing mm. innocent suffer, obtains a perfect example of a trigger, specific trigger. Yes, Seb, sorry. Yep. Have you got sorry, another no, question? I just wanted to ask Lee, yeah, we talk about obviously the validation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We talk about the validation and how um, obviously that helped in in the, in the sense of obviously it's ghastly that to be affirmed that that's happened to you. I'm sure in some ways you would have almost wished that that wasn't the case, but at least like like you've said and Jim has said, it has allowed you to to commence that journey of healing to be like, okay, look, I'm not imagining these things. These things happen. I also wanted to wonder just to ask, um, what did it feel like after that 30 years of being sent around the houses by you know, medical staff diagnosing you with all different seizures, epilepsy, and so on, to finally find your therapist and to be diagnosed with disassociative amnesia and to feel like you finally had a diagnosis that actually fits, that you could, you know, that you fit well, and you're like, yeah, you know what, that does, that does tick all the boxes and that, that doesn't feel wrong here and I can actually trust this diagnosis. I imagine... Whilst obviously I, no one wants to be diagnosed with anything that's that's bad for your health, of course not. You know, obviously everyone wants a, a good look of health if we can. But I imagine that it must have been a real sense of relief after thirty years of of trying to find the right diagnosis that would fully allow you to really start healing and, and start this process. Is that the case? Yeah, it definitely is. Relief is the first uh, was the first feeling. Well, no, it felt the diagnosis felt right. But I'd just like to pick you up on a previous point. I don't want to let the previous point uh, go. You said that uh, you would imagine it would be a relief for me to find it was not true. 
No, it wouldn't, because the body memories, the collapsing, the flashbacks, the images that I had, if they weren't true, I would have been fantasizing and I would have thought I was mad. So that wouldn't have worked for me. Um, yeah, right, if, I've got if, if I've the got therapist you. thought I was fantasizing, yes, then I do want to know. But he didn't. He actually specifically said, I do not believe you are fantasizing. Uh, he acknowledged that. So going back, it was the same therapist who um, gave the diagnosis. And as you say, the first thing is, yeah, that feels right to me. It really does. And it's not the ruddy diagnosis. You know, I've been shopping around. I want to hear because I didn't even know what diagnosis I was going to get. And then the other thing is I felt a relief, as you say, and then very, very, very angry that all this could have been picked. Although having said that, it could have been picked up um 30 years ago 32 years ago but maybe i wouldn't have had the strength to deal with it certainly the detail that's come out in the last couple of weeks um but no at the time you know i was very very angry and to a certain extent i still feel angry say with the neurologist that stand by i've still got seven different diagnoses viral encephalitis a trauma to the brain um clon uh, what's it tonic clonic seizures um, a cavernous hemangioma on a wrong scan on somebody else's scan, not mine. I challenged the date of the scan uh, that the diagnosis was made on. Um, so I'm livid. I am still livid. And you can tell it from the way I'm speaking at the moment. And also the unwillingness of doctors, GPs and neurologists to take a full story, to really listen, to consider the facts. The features of my episode, do, the episodes do not uh, fit the diagnosis of epilepsy. You don't have body memories. You don't have bruises on your arms. You don't have flashbacks. You don't cross the road and walk halfway across town. You don't find yourself walking the dog in a field one minute and then walk up several fields, opening and shutting gates, putting the dog on the lead and standing in the middle of a road with an epileptic seizure. So sorry, I, as you can see, I'm still angry on that one. There is an urgent need for neurologists and doctors to have further mm. education um, uh, about dissociative disorders. It's not only dissociative disorders, it's all the spectrum of the dissociative conditions, DID and so forth, derealization. Uh, and I do think it would help to change the terminology yeah. Yeah. to call it dissociative PTSD. So there's something the doctors can recognize that they can understand. Yeah. Uh, but there's an unwillingness to listen. And that saddens me. And that is a lack mm -hmm. of respect to me. And, of course, yeah, yeah. No, no, I mean, you're, you're echoing here what um, Dr. Mike Lloyd said in his podcast that, you know, sometimes it, it does feel like they're talking against a brick wall and it's this, yeah, not absolutely. only obviously to the general public, do we have to, and that's why we're doing this podcast, hopefully yeah, raise awareness to the general public, but also within the medical spheres to raise awareness that someone like yourself can be passed on to an expert as soon as possible, rather than going through all of that, um, that horrible process. I, I wonder, do you, do you ever find, for example, you know, you gave the example where you collapsed in, um, in Audi and, uh, you then the ambulance came and, and such forth. Nowadays, when, when you're talking to a medical expert who isn't your therapist, so store manager, sorry, my, my bad. But what, yeah. my question is, sorry, when, when you talk to, um, uh, you know, a, a medical professional who isn't a therapist, are they more aware of the terminology? Are they more aware of the, of the, of it? Are they more accepting <laughs> or do you, does it really only, is it really only understood by the therapist? 
Now, I've just moved house. That's another one of the impacts of the dissociation. I've had to move house because I don't drive anymore. Previously, I, it was life changing. Uh, I was living out in the country, um, but of course, I couldn't drive. The nearest town was six miles away. So I've had to move. And of course, I've had to change GP surgery. Uh, and the current GP actually asked me what it was. And I was referred for social prescribing. And again, uh, the person who was in charge of the social prescribing uh, asked me, how did the uh, dissociate, uh, dissociation affect me? And I was referred to uh, a group that meets uh, a pensioners group because I am 70 years old now. Um, I was referred to a pensioners lunch group as a way <laughs> of dealing with my dissociation. I said that didn't work. And therefore, they sent me to uh, the local psychology uh, mental health services. Uh, and I was I, initially I lost confidence. The um, the first psychologist to speak to me didn't have the right form for a, to, to assess somebody for dissociation. You use a form called the SCID D. They actually gave me another assessment form. Uh, I had the consultation over the phone. Unfortunately, the assessment referred to a couple of things I've experienced and I dissociated on the phone. Um, and I was referred to another psychologist who had no experience of dissociation and freely admitted she had no experience of dissociation. I offered the local mental health team to give a, a, a talk about dissociation and they said it was wasn't uh, they haven't even responded, and that was six weeks ago. So, which is very disappointing. Um, so, yes, there is an urgent need to educate um, GPs and neurologists, and for those of us, and that's why I'm passionate about speaking about you know my experiences. I don't want anybody else to go through what I've got through. And you've got the situation with the Syrian children and the Ukrainian children, again, watching that some of those children will experience what I've experienced and still, but I hope I'm on the end of this now, I believe I am, I've got this new sense of freedom now, um, that they're going to, where's the people that's going to help them? We must raise awareness, those of us who've got dissociative disorders, we must raise public awareness, we need to create the motivation to help. And probably we, we, we're going to need statistics, at the moment I can't find any national incidence rates. Um, we also need funding. A lot of NHS um, services, I know they're strained to the limit, they do a great job, but there isn't anything for somebody like me. There needs to be, there really, really needs to. If you've got any compassion in our society, you know, I beg people, you know, please look at dissociation. You know, I think there's a lot of us. Let's, let's get a TV programme, you know, just dispatches Panorama. Let's do some research on this. You know, uh, yes, we've all got horror stories, but, you know, help us heal, really help us heal. You know, because I tell you what, the joy that I'm getting now from the life, you know, I, my life has changed so much since I've had appropriate therapy. It really, really has. I'm beginning to create the life I love. Mm. Um, I've got people in my life that I care for, that I'm able, I, I'm more, I've become more loving, believe it or not. I'm less fearful. I live less fearfully now. My mental health's improved. Yeah. I can play. I can have fun. I can love. Mm. And I'm not frightened to love anymore. Um, but to say the other good things, it's not yeah. all bad. Those experiences really make me appreciate the love I've got in my life. They were horrible, but against the horror is the joy. That's the upside. You know, I've been lucky enough to travel the spectrum. 
uh, and there's a beauty within us all. It's worth helping us heal so that we can express that beauty and feel that beauty. And everybody benefits. It's a no-brainer. It really is. And that's my heartfelt plea. Lee, can I just jump in there? You brought you brought in um, you know how how much therapy's helped you, um, uh, you know since you started and helped you start to heal and create a life that you love, which is obviously fantastic. It's what exactly what we want to hear, and I'm sure what your therapist wants to hear as well. Um, but um, uh, you know, there's something that um kind of caught my attention was you know when you were a bit emotional just earlier and you said I'm not going to disassociate now. I could, but I'm not going to and. and yeah, can I? Can you talk us through? And maybe this is just my own misunderstandings. Forgive me for this, but you know, is has what are the, some of the tools? So for anyone who's listening to this, who maybe is on the precipice of, oh, you know, can I go to a therapist? Can I afford it? Is it worthwhile? You know, what what really can they help me? Am I a lost cause? What other type of thing? I don't, you have to go into great detail there, but just the type of tools that a therapist can help give you that can help, like you said create a life where you now really enjoy and, and no longer live with fear because um, one of my misunderstandings may be that I felt like disassociation was something completely involuntary and I wasn't sure that you could ever gain control over it but maybe the way that you said there that I'm not going dissociative now maybe they've given you some tools where you can not choose but you can you know kind of stave it off a little bit if, if certain things are put into practice is, is that correct or am I misunderstanding yeah no, you're absolutely spot on on that one. It's a, a very valid point. What the therapy enabled me to do was not only to release the unresolved trauma, to identify and release it, but, and let's see, this is where the triggers helped, was the fact that I, uh, I was able to I, uh, learn to identify what those triggers were. Okay, so to a certain extent, I can predict some of my episodes. So the Prince Philip situation, uh, sorry, the Prince Andrew situation. If I watch a program on that, I'm going to go off on one. OK, which, funnily enough, I did. I was silly. I thought I could live through it or, you know, I'm going to make it. And I, I didn't. I had an episode in response to that. So but I have I've got more competent on identifying my triggers so I can preempt some episodes and some things that used to trigger me don't. I've just got a, um, a voluntary. I do some voluntary work in the local uh, local charity shop. and. I never know what, that's the trouble. I never know when something's going to hit me. Uh, I'll be struck with somebody. And somebody in the shop, the first day I was there, said something that was absolutely spot on on one of the horrors that I said. It wasn't actually appropriate to be said. And I thought, oh boy, am I first day here? Am I going to go off on one? I realise this is a trigger. I have a choice. This is 2020, uh, 2022. I don't have to go off on one. And I carried on talking to myself, reassuring myself. And I didn't. I stayed present and I didn't have an episode. So I certainly have some triggers that I can now preempt. Um, I certainly know places with certain atmospheres um, I wouldn't go into now. I, I do challenge myself at times. I want to practice because if I can dissolve those triggers, then I'd rather do so. But obviously, I never know when I'm going to be hit with one. So, yes, I can identify them, I can predict some. Um, sometimes with my partner, I can just say, I think I'm going to go off on one and he can reassure me. He supports me and helps me through those. Um, so, yes, the therapy has helped. The tools are prevention, pre prediction, reassurance, um, and they've helped immensely in that regard. Okay. Can I ask, Paul, what what did you know about this yeah. association before you and and maybe can you just talk us about that learning process and 
and how is it uh, living yeah, or, um, sure, yeah. as mean, in a partnership with Lee on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, Thanks. to be honest, I knew before I met Lee, I knew absolutely nothing about association. I didn't even know. I had to look it up in the dictionary to see what it meant. I never have a clue. So I've learned uh, one heck of a lot since then. Um, and I suppose also one of the main challenges has always been the unpredictability of these episodes because they can they can happen outside at home in a restaurant literally anywhere you know and then um it's 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 kind of getting used to dealing with that they happen very quickly almost within seconds i can say one minute she's talking to me we're having normal conversation then she stops i look at her and her eyes are glazed over and she's just not responding to me at all and she looks totally She's gone, you know, she's gone somewhere else away from me. But luckily, the therapist who we, we know, we all know, is very helpful. He gave me some support and told me what to do in the situation. And that is um, take her hand, talk to her, tell her she's safe. There's nobody nasty around who would do any harm. Um, and then usually after about 10 minutes, she gradually comes back to me. And then she won't remember any of that. I mean, one of the main problems of being a partner for any of you out there who might be going through this is um, it's quite isolating as well. Because Lee doesn't remember her episodes, but I remember every detail of it. So I'm the one who goes around with a big weight sometimes (laughs) on my shoulders because I've taken it all on board. So now I'm learning more how to de-stress myself and, and look after one of your questions about looking after my mental health. Yeah, that's important. And I'm, I'm, I'm sort of trying to do that. Because there's no support groups for us. Because there's no support groups for her. So, you know, for the, for the partner, there's nothing. But we're getting there. We're getting there. And also... Um, I, I'm, I'm, Paul, on. what what improvements have you... Sorry, go on, Paul. Go on, go on. No, 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 you carry on. Okay. No, I was just saying, um, other ways of coping, really. Other ways of coping, I find. Um, We do have our own own space. We have days where, um, you know, we we do our own thing, and I do voluntary work as well in a different place. And so we have a different... We have mutual friends, but we have separate friends as well. So it's sort of people I can talk to who won't interact with us straight away. It makes it good for me. I've always got somewhere I can, I can, you know, they say, how's it going kind of thing. So we all need somebody to talk to, to offload a bit. And I do find I have got that support. I mean, I used to work in, I used to work in mental health where there was a lot of support groups yeah, that's in front of people, but there's just nothing yet for us. Yeah. Nothing. We live in hope. We live in hope, mm. yeah. And Paul, what are some of the improvements that you've seen from your end um, in terms of, of Lee and the way that she can deal with things and, and her day-to-day life? What What is it that you could say that you've seen as an improvement? Um, she's always been very independent anyway. She, she doesn't tend to let, let it get her down too much. And I, I you know, um, we've always said, I, I, I don't see myself as her carer. I don't want to be her carer. I don't want to babysit her all the time thinking when we go out, oh, she might have an episode. Uh, we talked about this today. It's, it's more about she's, she's happy to get out there in the world, live for today, and, and, and get on with it, really. You know, it doesn't 
sort of restrict her now. She, she seems very sort of able and free to, to go out and do things and lead a normal life and talk to people and tell people about it. So, yeah, I think that's a big change, really. And is that... Has that change given you the confidence, like you say, to meet with your friends and, and, and yeah. feel happy and confident that you can leave Lee to her own devices and, like you say, oh, yeah. not be her carer? Is it giving the confidence um, almost yeah. like a new um, life for yourself as well? Yeah, yeah. Oh, definitely. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't worry about her now when I'm not around, when I'm not here, if I'm doing something else. Because, um, uh, as she always says to me, it's going to happen, it's going to happen. And, and she's been lucky that there have been good people around to look after her anyway. It's happened out, out in the street or something. But that, that is a big, always be a worry for me, always will be. It's about her safety. Because when she has an episode, you know, she, she doesn't know where she is for a while. And, and that does bother me. But luckily, we're okay at the moment. It hasn't happened. So I hope it never does. Yeah. Uh, and Mike, forgive me if this is maybe um, slightly intrusive. And if you don't feel comfortable answering them, feel free to say, to say so. I just want to ask you. Yeah, if you could explain in, in some detail what an episode, a general episode, what that looks like. Just the reason I ask this is just that if someone else has mm. maybe seen their brother or sister or partner or whatever it may be, go through something similar, you know, what does that, what does that look like so that they can go, Oh, you know what? That sounds exactly like what my mate yeah. went through yesterday. And now I can come and tell him to listen to this podcast and to listen to the Mike yeah. Lloyd one. And start, you know what? You know, I know you said that she, she glazes over and yeah. you have to talk to her softly and eventually she comes around. But in that mm. 10 minutes where she's not with you, you know, what okay. is, it? Is, is it? Is it silence? Is it, is she saying things that have, are not coherent? What are the types of things that mm. happen in those 10 minutes? I mean, she does seem to be able to communicate with me. She can't, I ask her questions and she does talk to me, but we, we've discussed this and we, and we think that uh, she does revert back to her childhood because she, she smiles at me in a childish way. In other words, she's not being the adult anymore. Um, but I, I, am, I am almost conditioned and quite used to it now. I know it's always the same. It will be the same procedure for 10 minutes where I can ask her questions. I'll say, do you know where you are? And she, she often says, yes, I know where I am. But she's not looking at me in, in a Lee way. She's looking at me in a different way. She is looking very distant. You know, she's not quite with me. But she always smiles at me. She always seems really happy. Um, yeah, there have been a few more instances lately we've had where she's experienced a fall as well to something different. I found a collapse in front of the oven the other day when I came downstairs. So that was something a bit different. But I mean, she's been to see the GP. Obviously, they're having to look at other things as well to see in case there's something else going on, which might not be um, connected. Um, yeah, I guess it's, it's just this, this sudden change in behaviour. I think the important thing is it happens so quickly in seconds, literally. I can be talking to her, walking down the street, and then suddenly I look at her and I can tell she's, she's totally gone. Absolutely gone. She's not with me at all. So normally I do then take her, find a seat, sit her down is the important thing, as the therapist said, and just talk to her and reassure, reassure, say, you are safe. Nobody's going to hurt you. You'll be fine. And just sit out for 10 minutes and just hold her hand, really. And she's usually fine after that. So, But she won't remember any of it. You know, I have to say, 
I say to you, you know you've just had an episode, don't you? And she'll say, oh, did I? I didn't know. So, yeah. Yeah. But we cope very well. Right, okay. Yeah. That's that's very helpful. And, uh, well, yeah, clear to see. It's clear to see. And you know, the, the last question that I have from my end, just again, trying to just help um, establish certain norms so that maybe people can start to identify this and maybe help help themselves um when when lee's going through a good period of time you know however mm. long that may be two weeks a month whatever how mm. often are the episodes then and when she's going through you know like you said recently you know, with the ukraine and such forth when it's a lot more sh a stressed period of time how much more frequent are they the, the episodes i mean at the moment we're we're sort of touching wood and not even talking about it too much but <laughs> She's gone, as she said, she said she's gone three weeks from that episode. Prior to that, she was getting them quite often. And one weekend, I think she had a couple. So that was a bit worrying. So it's, it's quite, quite irregular. We're hoping there's a bit of a pattern going on at the moment where, where it's settling down more. So it's, it, it's very regular. I mean, it depends on the triggers. It depends on the triggers, yeah. I mean, it, it can go for... Well, in the past, it can go for a month or more. She's absolutely fine. And then suddenly it will happen. It's very unpredictable. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for that, Paul. And just before we come back to, to Lee, I just wanted to ask, is there anything that you think if someone like you has a loved one who either maybe maybe has this association and um, maybe is it's not confirmed yet it's not diagnosed but potentially or someone who's struggling with that process like they they're not sure how good they are or how supportive they are with their loved one is there anything that like seven myself didn't provoke that you would like to say to someone who has a loved one in a similar position yeah i would i would say uh easy for me to say now but i i would say uh don't no matter how difficult you find caring for somebody or looking after somebody um they're the ones who have the condition, which is a pretty rough thing to have. You know, no matter how you feel, imagine how they must feel um, about having this 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 this, this problem. So yeah, that's that's why I see it anyway. We're still better off than <laughs> what they might be when they're having an episode. So yeah, and it's not their fault they got this condition. You see, is it? So yeah, have faith, have courage. Yeah. That's what it is. Love. <laughs> Love. Do you want to ask Lee something? Yeah. Sure. Thanks a million, Paul. I appreciate that. Um, You're welcome. I, I know we're coming towards the end. Uh, Lee, one oh. thing that I wanted to ask is um, I'm, I'm interested in, in, in the role of spirituality in your healing. Um, and I know you even mentioned just in this podcast how your whole experience has talked about has reaffirmed your belief about the strength of the human spirit. I'd just love to to hear a little more about that for people who I'd imagine who are listening are maybe going through really, really difficult depths like you have with alcoholism and just misdiagnosis. And yeah, I'd love to just hear some of some of your experiences or some some of your perspective on this now. My spirituality is just vital to me. I'm not religious in any way, shape or form, but the plus, the biggest, biggest, biggest plus out of my experiences is to, truth is experienced, you can't teach it. 
So I've been given the opportunity to experience that spirit within me. The experiences I had from three years old to 14 year old were utterly, totally horrendous. Yes, the dissociation helped me survive, but there was something within me that also um, that saw me through. So that spirit within me is indomitable. I lost everything. I lost my child, my health, my money, my family, the lot. And that there was something within me you couldn't kill. You couldn't kill. Yes, I was frightened to love for a long time. But then one day, the person that did the worst thing for me, uh, the person who adopted my child, I saw them. And I just, I couldn't believe them. They were actually playing with my child. And I was squatting on the pavement, looking through the bushes at them. And I just felt utter total compassion. And I thought, wow, there's nothing that love can't forgive. I'm not trying to sound goody two-shoes. Even I was surprised I had the reaction, you know. And I thought, bloody hell. You know, the fact I can do, excuse my language, I apologise for swearing there. Um, you know, that they've shown me the most, the, the darkness defines the light, the most beautiful thing inside us all. You know, I've got it. I can feel it. It's lovely. So, yes, it was horrible to go through. Yes, it's been a real journey to try and heal. Uh, but it has given me the most beautiful, you know, to find my own truth, if you like. And I'm not trying to sound religious or preachy or convert anybody to my way. No. You know, I just, you know, I'm just so grateful. And what I've got, my relationship here with Paul, you've just seen, I'm free to love him. And that's also the dissociation, you know, the, the, getting rid of all that. You know, I can just feel that love. You know, I'm not frightened to love anymore. Um, so, yes, my times of meditation, I do meditate each day. I can feel that connection to myself if I meditate. So my meditative practice is important to me. Um, acceptance. You know, I'll, I know that if you look at adversity, wait, sooner or later, I'll find a gift within it, an opportunity, a learning or healing. I don't, I don't like what happens, uh, but certainly I know how to get through them and I'll grow and I'll learn something. Um, and finding that that spirit within me or feeling it or experiencing it, um, it sustains me. It really does. It energises me. Um, but it's something you can only experience, you can't teach it. And I say my experiences have helped me do that. And without the dissociation, it's a darn sight easier, I tell you. <laughs> and yeah, and if everybody could, I'd love everybody to feel like I feel now. And We've all got love inside us in spades, mm. it's bonkers. And, and Lee, can I just ask the. Sorry. <laughs> Indeed, preach it, preach it. Um, no, I don't want to be. No, no, please. I was, I was, no. Forgive me for interrupting. I just wanted to get in because something <laughs> we could do with more of them in the world. I think at the moment, but um, no, Jim yeah. and I are sometimes guilty of not ask, forgetting to ask this final question. We get so enwrapped in, in, in the conversation. The final question we always have, um, and you kind of touched on it just slightly there, but you know, you talk about your meditative practices. I wonder if there are any other little tips or tricks or just daily routines um that you do that help you know other other than what's you know that help you to deal with the trigger and stuff but that help you keep on top of your mental health in general i'm talking about that maybe someone listening to this can can you know take on board and hopefully um give alleviate themselves as well some of their problems right. believe it or not like i live with the pain of the loss of my son you know i haven't seen him for 30, you know, 30 odd years that you can still feel joy. So yes, it's my meditation. I am actually grateful for all the blessings in my life, whether it's a flower, I'm looking out here into some clematis in the garden or bird song in the morning. I, I'm grateful. So I do spend time 
not any religious sense, but just acknowledging what I do have in my life, good friends, you know, the pluses in life, the bonuses in life. Um, acceptance is another thing, you know, knowing that, you know, there's some things I won't like, you know, but I don't, I don't get sort of irritated by them. I do sometimes, poor girl witness, but mm. uh, <laughs> he pulls me back. But no, I know that if I, you know, acceptance um, and creating the life I love and setting the intention to enjoy my day, not endure it. Very definitely. But I do make a bit more of a conscious effort on that. Very definitely. To do more of what I enjoy and what I love doing rather than bemoaning what's going wrong in my life. So I've definitely become more positive in that regard. And I do put conscious effort into that. Very definitely. Um, but then it seems to be coming a bit naturally now. So I'm going to be nauseatingly a goody two shoes. And, <laughs> and as a distraction, guys, wait for it. As a distraction, she paints gnomes oh, in the yes. garden. How about that? That's therapy. <laughs> Can't beat that one, can you? Yeah, I do have a gnome collection, very definitely. <laughs> they remind me not to take myself hey. too seriously, to live lightheartedly, yeah. uh, and to play and have fun, very <laughs> definitely. And I'm able to do that now. I'm, you're invited to uh, Shropshire to, to come and see my gnome collection. They should be painted by the end of May. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Listen, we all have our vices that we're not too proud of. So <laughs> if the gnome painting is what does it for you, then that's more than, <laughs> then, that's, then that's great. Um, listen, I think that the, the one sentence that I'm going to leave with this at the very end, you just said, which I really, really like, I'm trying to enjoy my life, not endure it. Um, and I, I think that's probably the best place we could leave this podcast so, on. Sorry, really. Sam, can I just... Yeah. Sorry, Sam, Jim, can I just... On, John, go on. Just the last thing... Um, Lee is unfortunately your experience is somewhat common and we think that, that people will be listening and, and would have had difficulties and is we just want to ask is there something that we haven't really asked in the last hour or so that you would like someone who has been through a similar experience to you is there something that you would like to say be very gentle with yourself be very patient with yourself and also you need courage to look at your dark side because some of the experiences we have, we can go on to hurt others. Um, and it, that, that's probably the hardest thing I found was looking at my own dark side where I'd been behaved in ways that were less than perfect. But that was one thing that therapy helped me with. Uh, when the therapist said to me, because I felt very guilty about the loss of my son and because I'd been so traumatized, I couldn't be a good parent. So I lived with the guilt. And then it was pointed out to me that it wasn't that I wouldn't be a good mother. It was because I couldn't be a good mother. You know, that traumatized people do not make good parents. Um, so the alleviation of the guilt uh, was very helpful to me. Um, so, yes, be patient, persevere, um, be gentle, but definitely get the right person, if you can, to work with you to deal with the dissociation and have support around you. And sadly, there's not enough yet. But mm. I hope with the start of this video, we might start creating an energy that will do that. So we can literally enjoy life, not endure it. With gnomes, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. We'll leave it there. <laughs> with gnomes, with gnomes. We'll leave <laughs> it there. Thank you ever so much. Um, this has been absolutely perfect. <laughs>